anybody can start a business and figure out a way to make money from it. We have to deal with a lot of the misconceptions. Oh, entrepreneurship's only for a few people. You got to have the entrepreneurship DNA gene, which doesn't exist. Just stupid statements that become urban legend like, well, did you know 98% of new businesses fail? Michael Morris, thank you for coming on our podcast today. And if you wouldn't mind, could you please uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing at Notre Dame? Certainly. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I um, am a professor in the Keough School of Global Affairs at Notre Dame and um, have spent a career building entrepreneurship programs and doing research and teaching in entrepreneurship. But I came to Notre Dame to focus exclusively on poverty and entrepreneurship. And so we, amongst other things, have launched something called the Urban Poverty and Business Initiative, which is a intervention program working with low-income and disadvantaged individuals as they try to start businesses. And so the sort of theme is, can entrepreneurship serve as a pathway out of poverty? And so we work with uh, folks, uh, the, we have a standard kind of model and a and, and unique approach that reflects the poverty context. And it's a, a program that now operates in, in uh, over 35 cities. That sounds incredible. And how many of those cities are outside of the United States? Currently, eight of them are in South America, Africa, the, uh, uh, India, um, and a few others that are about to come on stream. And what are you looking for in determining a city that will serve as a hub abroad, aside from, like you mentioned, being in poverty? Well, the, there's poverty everywhere, so that's not the problem. Uh, but at the same time, the poor and people in just, you know, just diverse, adverse circumstances, you know, they're used to being let down. They're, they're used to being promised things where nothing's delivered or people come in with good intentions, but they just want to feel good and, and or the photo op and they're not around six months later. And so the biggest thing we look for, David, is, is a long-term commitment. Um, that they're going to be around in five years, dedicated to the program. And so that passion for the problem, and um, which eliminates a number of people once you sort of scratch a little below the surface. And the other is their capacity to implement the program. It's a 10 and a half month annual program. It has six components to it. And so that capacity either through the partner organization or through a, a local partnerships that they form with other organizations um, is, is critical. I see. I'm curious, how can you determine if someone's going to be a good long-term candidate? Because you're projecting out five years. It, it can be challenging to see if someone's going to stick around for six months. Yeah, I mean it's it's subjective, and and I wouldn't claim to, you know, have mastered the 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 art, but we have multiple conversations in the lead up to a, a 
welcoming a new partner. I share what we call a playbook. It's about a 65-page document that lays out the pieces and parts of the program. So they review that. We don't decide whether there's a good fit. They have to make that decision. And the thoughtfulness that goes into that, the kind of questions they ask us, the extent to which they want to engage us and you use the support that we provide them all say something about sustainability so so our commitment level so so too does sort of the genesis of how they got to us and because we don't proactively market the program uh we i do presentations in different forums but there has to be a fit and and so when you start having conversations with them you you're also trying to probe into where did this come from what you know did some senior administrator at a at your organization say we need to do this and say david you run with it um because we wouldn't pursue that because that senior administrator will turn over and you got into it because you were told to do it it's a mix of those kind of more subjective considerations that, that makes a lot of sense. And how long has the program been going on? Well, in some form, and in, in, in its core form it's in today, about eight years. Um, but that was us doing the program ourselves. So we launched a, an initial version of it when I was at the University of, of Florida. And when I came to the University of Notre Dame, we launched it here as well. And it was only then that we started to scale it by adding more cities. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of been this, the, the, the sort of stereotype of building the plane while you're flying it. Um, and so we've been able over the last five years to build a lot of support mechanisms and infrastructure to, 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 to support what's become a, you know, a pretty good sized partnership and, and certainly one that we had never envisioned would, would, would be the size it is now. I read a disturbing statistic in the overview that you shared with me that over a trillion dollars has been spent trying to alleviate poverty in the US and yet it still persists. What are some of the causes do you think for why the money doesn't seem to be solving well first of all that that's annual trillion dollars annual and that's just the u.s i mean you look around the world and 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 you you see similar patterns and the patterns are a little different in developing versus developed countries but that's not an indictment of the spending if you look at a lot of that money it's for food it's for health coverage or health care. It's it's it could be jobs training. It could be money that is for housing. I think you have to distinguish money. So what's the benefit of that spending every year? It's not moving people out of poverty. It's allowing people in poverty to survive. And so things would be much worse if, if there weren't 
some level of of support being provided. But what the government has not proven to be especially good at is actually transitioning large numbers of people out of poverty. So, so you have to sort of draw that distinction. The ironic thing, David, is if you look globally, and, and many people have made the, a big deal out of between 1990 and 2020, leading right up to COVID, meaningfully re- meaningful reductions in, in global poverty. And while that's true, that level of reduction is accounted for principally by two countries, India and China. Other countries, especially African countries, many of them actually have seen increases in poverty. And so why those two countries and why and, and a lot of that reduction in poverty is tied to dynamic e- economic growth of the overall economy. So the sort of rising tide lifting all boats. Um, and that kind of, you know, the, the explosive economy in China and, and, and India. But that's not the norm. And that, that rate of growth isn't even sustainable in those countries. And and so we have to revisit the question of, um, all right, what else can move people out of poverty other than the economy booming? Um, and uh, there it gets there it gets much more complex. Um, a lot of what the governments do are, are job training kinds of things. Unfortunately, too many of those jobs. Too much of that training either doesn't translate into a job or too many of those jobs end up not being especially well-paying or or not providing the kind of upward mobility and human development capabilities of people. So they're stuck. Um, And uh, that's not to say that some of those job training programs aren't valuable. It's, It's just, again only part of the solution it's 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 a piece of the solution and what we're looking at is is entrepreneurship another piece of the solution it's not the be all end all and certainly many poor people start ventures that don't move them out of poverty in fact some cases could make them worse off so the real question is if you ask the question can entrepreneurship move people out of poverty the answer is it depends, and, and it depends on contextual factors that can be influenced, can be affected. And our program is an example of a contextual factor that can make a difference. What are some things you've learned in the eight years or so of running the program? Well, I, th- I think over the o- overarching thing that we've learned and that's, that is now built into how we do everything is that conventional approaches to entrepreneurship don't work especially well when you're working with low income and disadvantaged people. You you have to start with the poverty context and what's unique about it and what's unique about it when you're trying to start a business. And so poverty isn't just a lack of income. It is chronic health problems, it is housing insecurity, it's food insecurity and poor diets, it's lack of dependable transportation, 
it's a very high rate of single parenthood and teenage pregnancy. It's high school dropout rates that are above, well above average. Um, it's social exclusion. Uh, and, and the list goes on, you know, more having to deal with more crime in, in your life. And so physical insecurity. Um, significant literacy and not, not just functional reading, writing and numeracy, but technological literacy, financial literacy, economic literacy. And so those unique characteristics of the poverty context, that multidimensional nature of poverty means the question is, what does it mean when you're trying to start a business? And we've identified four major challenges that the poor face when they try to start a business. Um, and, and so our program is tailored around those four things. And so if you take conventional approaches to training people or helping people start businesses, the, the most popular historical approach is the business plan approach. Uh, a second very popular approach called the lean startup approach. Neither one of those works well with the poor. The, the, the lean startup is much more effective when you're talking about scalable, technology-centric, growth-oriented businesses. And the business plan, so, so let me illustrate the challenge with the business plan approach. It's, if you're in poverty, one of those four obstacles when you're trying to start a business is something we call a scarcity mindset. Imagine a, a person in poverty. Imagine a week in their life. In a given week, it's, I have to make a trade-off decision. Do I pay the rent or do I pay a medical bill? And so everything is short-term. Everything is immediate-term. How do I get through the month? Every decision is taken in isolation. I'm not thinking about... How does this decision relate to this decision relate to this decision? I'm taking them in isolation, which, which means I'm sub-optimizing. And, and I'm almost always having to make a trade-off. So I decide to pay the doctor's bill instead of the rent, which means I pay a penalty, which means the rent actually costs me more. I'm worse off. And so that scarcity mindset makes it very hard to plan. Imagine walking into a help center in Vancouver and say, I want to start a business. And they go, well, you have a business plan. No, what's that? Well, here's a template. Go write a business plan and we can help you. The, the, the challenge is a business plan wants me to think five years ahead, wants me to put together pro forma financial, projected financial statements. And so what we do is we use a stepwise approach, which is, we break the entrepreneurial journey, not to a startup, anybody can start something, the journey to a sustainable, consistently profitable business. We break that journey into 80 steps, eight zero. So many are pre-startup, so many are launch and early adjustment, so many are the pathway to sustainability. And our whole mantra is progress begets progress. So if we can hold your hand and help you take 20 steps. You'll take 20 on your own. And that sort of stepwise approach works because the person's not overwhelmed with, I, I don't know how to deal with 
cash flow. I don't know how to set up bookkeeping. I don't know what, what, what how to set up a website or a bookkeeping system. Or it, it's what are the three steps I need to take in the next month? The five steps, whatever. And so, so that works much better. It's 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 how we structure things. So that's that's a big lesson that that um, I I I think is instrumental into in the success of what we do. There are a number of others. You have to meet people where they are. So we we do the program in the community, not on a university campus. Um, we don't. We, we often say we're not in the idea killing business. You know, the world of entrepreneurship is, is, has a venture capital mindset. Bring me an idea. I'll rip it apart. If there's anything still standing, then maybe you got something. So we have pitch competitions in entrepreneurship. Well, the problem, there's a winner and a bunch of losers. We do the opposite. I don't care how marginal or weak your business idea might be, we're not here to kill it. We're, we're here to nurture it. And so you may be starting an eyelash extension business, and there may be 30 of them in the local community. And that's a tough business to, to, to succeed in. But our strategy is let us show you how to make as much as you can from that. And in so doing, you're going to start to see you need other products or you need to consider other markets or you need to. And, and so that is, is an important part. We, we never come and say, hey, why don't you don't do that? Why don't you start this? Because the person has to have ownership of the thing they're starting, no matter what it is. And, and so there are others, but those would be some of the key insights that we've gained. Thank you for sharing that. And it looks like you're doing amazing work. The um, stats that I saw were about 80% get to uh, launching a proper business and about 35% are successful. Is that over the eight years? Yeah, those are pretty consistent numbers. And those are great numbers in the world of entrepreneurship. When, when we, the latter, the 35 or so percent, those are businesses that we feel are have a sustainable revenue stream. They're, 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 they're stable in terms of, of the, the ability to generate sales. Okay. And a little bit about you. What made you interested in this? What led to you being like so involved in this community? Well, my, you know, when I decided that what interested me was entrepreneurship, you know, it was the beginning of my career. And, and back then you couldn't get a PhD in entrepreneurship, which you can today. So you, you didn't go study that as a, as, a, as a doctoral student. And yet that is what intrigued me. My early training in economics was always, was always frustrated because in economics, they would talk about the four factors of production, land, labor, capital, and entrepreneurship. But then they would proceed to focus on three of them and ignore or just take for granted the, the entrepreneurship component. And so my passion and interest in entrepreneurship over 40 years is, is, is tied to a, a profound belief that 
entrepreneurship represents a form of empowerment. As you know, David, that word empowerment is grossly overused and misused. But the idea that you can literally lift yourself up from your bootstraps, that you, you can create something of your own, your own job, your own income, your own identity, your, 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 your own voice, your own ability to give back, your own ability to hire people like yourself, that's empowerment. And I've always believed that that is the magic of entrepreneurship. It's democratic. Anybody can do it. Um, it, 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 it is freedom creating. I don't have to work for the man anymore and in some dead-end job where I'm not developing as a human being and my well-being isn't being enhanced. I'm just getting a paycheck so I can feed my family. And so that, as I've built entrepreneurship programs at different universities and engaged in scholarly research and teaching, we always, in the programs we build at different universities, we, we, we always included the shiny object, which is the sexy, create the next Uber or the next, TikTok or the next SpaceX. But in our programs, entrepreneurship under adversity has always been a mainstay. And so we created programs that focused on women, on disabled veterans, on Native Americans, and on the poor. And so that has always been with me. It's just in this latter part of my career, I decided that's all I'm going to do. So we focus only on poverty and entrepreneurship. That's amazing. I too believe that the entrepreneurial mindset is only going to appreciate day by day as changes come and people need to repackage their experience and abilities into new use cases. So I think it's really good um, that you're, you're coming at it from the angle that you are. With the experience that you have, do you see any like areas that are a little bit more advantageous for entrepreneurs, or is it pretty much a level playing field? Just recognize yourself in the environment and apply. It's the latter. There are always new hot kinds of things, but for these entrepreneurs, you know, most of the businesses are more basic nuts and bolts kind of businesses. And so they don't as much capitalize on, you know, new breakthrough technologies. So, so if you take something like AI, um, we don't see many entrepreneurs that are going to do the kind of research and development and advance the frontiers of AI. But what we do see is the potential for AI to help them jumpstart their businesses and skip a number of critical steps that they wouldn't otherwise have resources to 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 address and so n n not so much i mean th they're always you know something new comes along that is easily replicated and you know, so these entrepreneurs will jump on some of those kind of things but no it it's more individual um and more tied to the what the, the dreams of the individual person and their life experiences okay that makes sense. 
What makes Notre Dame unique in this regard? I I'm, I imagine there's other schools that do something similar, but I haven't come across them. Uh, Notre Dame is the first school that I've come across that's doing a program like this. Are you aware of any other schools that are doing this? And if if not, uh, why is Notre Dame special in that regard? Yeah, so th there are um, school universities. So most of our partners in the 36 cities are are universities, not all of them. Some of them are nonprofits, but there are some other initiatives. Um, maybe haven't scaled as much, but examples where universities are doing things in um, in in communities. Santa Clara in California uh, has has something they're doing. Uh, Rutgers in Newark, New Jersey has 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 an exciting program. Um, but what we've attempted to do is build a, a model that can be replicated that reflects the, the, the potential to leverage campus and community resources to walk these entrepreneurs through the 80 steps or some subset of therein. Um, and so you know, I haven't seen as there aren't a lot of programs. You're right about that. Um, and I can explain why, but but there aren't a lot of programs. Uh, but where there are programs, they haven't necessarily tried to do more than what what they're doing in their region or in, in their locality. Are most of the schools that you know, are doing this private universities or is it about even public and private? Uh, in our network, um, the, the 36 cities, um, most of them are not private, uh, and, and some of our partners are nonprofit institutions. And we have an example is Atlanta, Georgia, where it's a partnership between a faith-based nonprofit that's heavily engaged in. Uh, they serve thousands of meals to the homeless and clothing and housing and and they do some job training and they've added UPBI as another dimension of what they're doing. And they've partnered with uh, Kennesaw State University, Must Ministries, Kennesaw State. So that's a hybrid kind of thing. And it, it, it it's different in different localities. We just added Las Vegas and that's also a, a nonprofit it's sort of a 50-50 partnership with the university and a nonprofit. Um, so it, all, it 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 varies by 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 location, uh, but it's the the being private or public isn't an issue, and it's it's more frequently public. But then more universities are public, so it it, it doesn't have anything to do with the program. In terms of Notre Dame. Um, this is a wonderful home for the program because uh, the university, you know, our mission as a university and what is very much um, nurtured within every student who walks in the door is uh, doing things for the better good. Um, and so, uh, and it has a history of that. Um, and so has been a, 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 
incredibly welcoming environment for for this program and and uh, for helping us get it off the ground in terms of its expansion. Um, so I just think it's it's consistent with the whole DNA of the place. Yeah, my introduction to uh, Notre Dame, I think, was the movie Rudy. Did you ever watch that? <laughs> well, you're, you're, I don't think you're allowed in South Bend, Indiana, if you haven't watched that movie. Okay. But yeah, it's pretty amazing what you're what you're doing. And as I understand, is it like you're trying to get to 50 locations? We we don't have a specific target, David. We you know when I when we started out and I we first decided let's go beyond just doing it in South Bend, Indiana or Gainesville, Florida, we we I had this sort of unspoken dream that wouldn't it be incredible if one day we could get to 30 cities? And I thought that's five to seven years away. It proved to be more like four years. Um, and we, but it's not about numbers. It, it's about the quality of the program, the extent to which it's touching real lives and making any kind of difference. As we've grown, we've realized the need to provide more infrastructure and support for the partner. So we we have a dedicated website that is packed with resources, and I visit a lot of the cities. Um, and obviously, as it gets bigger, it 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 it's it, it's more complicated to coordinate. We we have bi-monthly meetings of the partners. We had the first in-person meeting of all the the partner cities and and. Alabama in January. Um, so who knows where it will go? Um, we continue to try to innovate. Um, so our partner in Minneapolis is 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 and and our partner in Cape Town, South Africa, are sort of collaborating in an alternative uh, approach to the mentoring part of the program, or at least a an augmented approach. Um, we're just about to launch our first, what we call cluster-based model. So if you're starting a, a food-related business in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or Bakersfield, California, or, or in Cape Town, South Africa, we're creating a platform where entrepreneurs in the different cities, but that are in a given industry can collaborate, can share, can, uh, and, and those kind of exciting new things. Our partner in Milwaukee has actually opened a store, a retail store that sells the products of their entrepreneurs. So um, I really see it, 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 not so much how many cities do we add as how do we keep getting better and how do we keep innovating? Yeah, that's amazing. Creating a, a global network and having it in, like intensify and enrich in each other's pursuits. So you can have mentors coming from different locations, maybe sharing some of the knowledge that they've found, maybe leveraging some arbitrage. So that's really exciting. How how could listeners support these efforts? How could they participate in what you're doing? Well, uh, you know, there are a number of different things. I I uh, obviously, if they're in some location where they'd like to see 
a version of our program in their their city, they they might be able to help bring relevant parties together and start communicating with us about yeah, let's let's try it in you know here or there or wherever in Adelaide, Australia, whatever. Um so that's that's one um if they happen to be in a city where we're 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 operating, obviously they can get involved as 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 mentors or volunteers. There's a a lot of tasks related to the it's a ten and a half month program with six components. And so um and 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 a, a critical thing is always you know any kind of financial support. So we you know, universities aren't set up to do things like this. And so we have to find resources where where we can. Um, and as we've gotten traction and produced results, um, you know, it's it, at least more people will talk to us about that. But um, it, it, it it's a need from an overall coordinating the network, but also it's a need in individual cities. And and we do it. It's a it's a lean program. We we do it for a strikingly low amount of money each year. Yeah, yeah, that's really impressive. Looks like you really put in uh, heart and collaboration. Uh, everyone kind of coming together, um, and so you you can get a lot done when you have purpose. There's a you know non monetary um, kind of element to to this sort of endeavor and. The grit and determination that's required to succeed in entrepreneurship uh, usually is more than just a checkbook. Yeah, no, it, it, you're right, and I mean, and it's, I mean, we're on a mission, um, but I, I can't capture how much we get back from doing this. It's you know, when you walk into a room, we just started our fifth cohort here in South Bend, Indiana, and, and, and we, we have about 80 in the cohort. It's a big, big, big group. But just in South Bend is 80? Yeah, it's, wow. it's, it's amazing. It's amazing to me how many low income people have a dream of having their own business of some sort. Because you think, you know, South Bend is not that big. The region uh and and we're doing at least 70 a year and we have a wait list um to get in we we had to cut it off at some point but the the so 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 the the, the opportunity there is, is 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 just huge and um so so our, our what i want to stress though is when you walk into you know the first six we do, they do six weeks of training six saturdays of training at the front end of the program and and you walk into a room of 50 or 60 or, or however many 35 and there's just a vibe because these are all people who come from disadvantage who've dealt with hardship or continue to deal with hardship and adversity but they they have a dream they have something they want to do or that they are trying to do but struggling with and when they can look across the room and they know Lakeisha over here and they know the crap she's dealing with in her life and she's making it they go I can do this so 
the cohort is part of the magic of the program. It's it's the way they support each other, the way they end up, hey, I've got, I found this resource, maybe you could use it, or one of the two of us do something together, some kind of co-marketing thing, or so, so um, it becomes an incredible privilege for us to be involved in it. No doubt. Is there anything that you want to leave us with as we wrap up this interview? First of all, I'm just appreciative of the chance to talk with you about it and, and share it with you. Um, I, I, I just think we, we too often stereotype things and stereotype poverty and, um, or misunderstand entrepreneurship. Um, but anybody can start a business and figure out a way to make money from it. And, you know, we have to deal with a lot of the misconceptions. Oh, entrepreneurship's only for a few people. You got to have the entrepreneurship DNA gene, which doesn't exist. Anybody can do this, but they, they need somebody to hold their hand and, and walk that journey with them some of the way. And, you know, there are all kinds of other things that scare people. You hear just stupid statements that become urban legend, like, well, did you know 98% of new businesses fail? That's just, that's just, there, there isn't a shred of evidence to support that. The business failure rate in the United States is about 45%. And, and that's still high, but it, it's not 98%, you know? And, and if you do things right, you won't be a victim of, 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 of the, the process. So I, I just, uh, I hope people listening um, come to share the, the, the understanding of the, just the incredible potential of people to find their own way out of poverty. They just need a, a bit of a hand. Powerful message. And thank you for what you're doing. I'll definitely do my part to support it. And I hope the listeners will as well. Thank you, Michael. Well, thanks, David. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.